take the cake from our ground Dig it up and ship it out everywhere Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you, as always, is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. The year is 2004. I graduate from college. I say to my mom and dad, I'll talk to you later. I'm not going to go get a job. I'm actually going to go and I'm going to follow a rock and roll band around America with my best friend, Drew Reed. Drew Reed, when he was in Colorado, met up with these blokes on the street corner. They were blowing a ditch, and they were playing this mongrel type of music, this Celtic Australian rock, if you will. Quickly, Drew became friends with them, and the band asked Drew to go out on the road in 2004, and I got a chance to meet the band Brother. Two brothers, Angus Richardson and Hamish Richardson, reunited with their old drummer, Dalbo Allen, and they did a whole bunch of dates, and we filmed a documentary that you could still buy today on their website, as well as Amazon.com and other websites called Mongrel Mythology. The lead singer of the band... His name was Hamish, short for Hash, we used to call him. And I remember meeting this guy, you know, and thinking, is he Jesus Christ reborn? Is he Jesus of Nazareth? Because when he looks at me, he's looking right through my soul. And I'm Uh saying to myself, you know, this guy, you know, I guess now I'm 35. And at that time, our ages were very similar. I was young, but I learned a lot from him. The first time I met him was actually in Philadelphia, and the band Brother was doing... um, JDRF, Juvenile Diabetes Research Concert. Um, they were all decked out in colors and stuff. And I remember meeting Hash in his uh, hotel room. He had some dreadlocks and he had very vibrant, colorful uh, garments on. And when I first spoke to him, I knew that immediately I could learn a lot from this guy. And, uh, you know, I was very happy to go on the road with them. You know, and like I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about being a musician. I learned a lot about being a human being. I learned a lot about, you know, taking care of other people, taking care of your fans. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Bobcast, Hamish Richardson, all the way from Australia, here live on the Bobcast tonight. Hash, how are you? I'm well, Bob. Greetings, everybody, from Narrawali Beach. Oh, is that where you are? Narrawali Beach, okay. Beach, so, South Australia. So there's, there's thousands of miles separating us right now, but together here we are in the lounge. I always ask the musician, you know, or the artist who's on the Bobcast, go way back into your mind and tell the Bobcast listeners, what was the defining moment in your life where you knew that you wanted to be a musician? That is a very interesting question for me, Bob, because I'm not sure if there ever was actually a defining moment when I knew that. It was something that that my brothers and I just sort of grew up knowing. Mm-hmm. And I, when we all started learning musical instruments from an early age, from about five, but for some reason, I don't know when it happened, but somewhere between about five and ten, we just decided that we wanted to be pop stars. Yeah. Not really having any idea what that meant, apart from playing a band and there'd be microphones and hopefully lots of uh, screaming fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apart from that, I, I really don't know why why that was our chosen path or why it became it. We did have a lot of support from our parents, but uh, yeah, I don't know. We just always thought that's, that's what we were going to do and wanted to be. And you did set out and you did that. 
Do you remember the first time that you and, um, well, you like the band that I knew was with Angus, but you also had a third uh, member, uh, original member, um, Fergus, right? Was his first name? Fergus, yeah. Yes. Now, Jack Avalon. Yes. So when was the first time that you guys, under the name Brother, performed in front of people? Uh, the name always eluded us. We, we went through many, many different names. Uh what was and the first? What, what was the original names of brother? The original name was the Springdale Swingers. Uh, I'm sorry. Say, say that again. I think uh, Skype broke us up a little bit there. The Springdale Swingers. Say it again. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just losing you a bit too. This. So the first. Can you got me now? Yep, I got you. Yeah. The, the name of our first band. Well, our first band name was the Springdale Swingers. Love it. <laughs> I never knew that. That's great. <laughs> That's when, we were, when I was about 10. Wow. Because we were in Springdale Road. But, um, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That was, we didn't actually have a band. We just had a band name. Mm-hmm. And then after that, at high school, we became the Missing Links. I can dig that. And then in Sydney, we were Chobro, as in <laughs> Richo Brothers, Richardson Brothers. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, were asked to, to do a tour with a, um, kind of an all-star lineup here called the Party Boys, and it was on that tour. We're doing backing vocals and guitars and stuff. That's where we first met Joe Walsh. But um, on that tour, that was when we were sort of dubbed Brother. The tour manager actually arrived back with three black T-shirts with Brother. Wow! Across the front, and so it was. I guess that name was kind of bestowed upon us. Wow! That, we, that's interesting. Yeah. So when we hit the states. We were looking around for names, and we just thought, let's just go with the one that was bestowed upon us. Do you still have that shirt somewhere? It's funny you should ask that, Bob, because at the moment, uh, my folks are in the process of moving house. Mm-hmm. They'll move out of their place here to a smaller place around the corner in about three weeks. And my dad this morning just put a carpet down on their big, long dining room table and said, right, we're going to go through all the brother stuff now. Uh- <laughs> There will be an old T-shirt wow. amongst that stuff of memorabilia they've got. Yeah, that we have to decide whether we're chucking or keeping. So, when you guys first moved to America, you moved to Los Angeles, correct? Yeah. Um, what was like your like you know like coming like living in a different country, coming over to you know Hollywood and Los Angeles and seeing like you know just the, you know the whole different atmosphere? Like, what was your overall perception of it back in the day? defines my and the band's career, um, especially the brothers, is that uh, we were, I I look upon us as being sort of clue havers. You know, we grew up on a farm, and so just by that nature, we were a little bit more isolated, certainly a lot less uh, worldly than many of our contemporaries, and we also had this, uh, this way of doing things, I guess by being on the farm, was just we had to do everything ourselves. So I think our mindset, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, was that we always had to work everything out for ourselves. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that became a double-edged sword for sure. For sure. But So going somewhere like LA, it was just a big adventure, mm-hmm. but we really arrived having no idea. We had some gigs lined up uh, through our manager, Russell Hayward at the time. Had a few gigs lined up, but beyond that, no idea what was in store for us. You know, we our 
imagination sort of sort of landing in LA after a few weeks or months getting a big record deal and you know coming home the big big sort of new heroes I guess mm-hmm. uh, fairy tale rock and roll story yeah. which we all discover isn't uh, is is quite elusive so yeah, I think we arrived in LA as pretty naive farm boys and it yeah we just felt our way I remember uh, on our way to our first rehearsal we uh, hired a uh, a local drummer over there that we were going to do some gigs with on our way to our first rehearsal I dropped the guys off in their gear in front of the Musos Institute in Hollywood went off to get a car park pulled up at some lights and this dude just jumped into the car with me and said oh look I've just got to just got to um, do this deal and he had some weed he needed to drop off somewhere oh. this after a, you know, a week in LA and so I ended up driving this dude to <laughs> oh his drop off just having no idea and just like I'm not quite sure what just happened but yeah. I think I was just involved in the drug deal oh so my God. Yeah. but um I don't know, that's just what it was like. We kind of just fell one foot in front of the other and worked it out as we went. And uh, LA was, I think, definitely a bit of a culture shock. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we got this big old LTD brown station wagon that carried all our gear and all the band, and we travelled around, drove it into the dirt, and then, yeah, gradually found our way. What was the name of that one? That was Big Brown, right? It was uh, Bertha Brown. Bertha Brown. Okay, yeah. I, I never drove that one. I drove the the red Volvo. I used to. I remember. I used to have to take. Uh, I, I had to drive the red Volvo one time, and the the stick shift was really, really like it was hard to operate. And I remember I was on one of those hills going up towards sunset, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna just roll back and hit these people. But yeah, I remember all those vehicles. <laughs> so you guys move uh, to Los Angeles, and then, you know, quickly, I guess, you know, you, you were doing your thing out there, you were doing some busking, you were playing up at the Universal City Walk, but then the music spread east, and you started, you know, I mean, when I first joined, like, you guys in 2004, you, know, you had fans in Texas, you had fans in Michigan, you had fans all the way down in Florida, when did the the band like start venturing out and going on tour? Yeah, well, like you say, we started really. We did a lot of our rent paying by busking in LA. So we busked at Venice Beach, up at the Hollywood Bowl, at the um, LA Music Center after the opera and the symphony, up at uh, Universal City. Well, we did really well busking and mm-hmm. paid our rent and and a bit more and. Uh, on the street, when we came over here, our vision was that we were just going to be a rock band and that ultimately we would pull the bagpipes out some point down the line as just a bit of a surprise and a feature, oh, but see. never use them as a gimmick. Um, but when we started playing on the street, doing all the busking, it was the pipes and then later the didgeridoo that really helped set us apart and got attention. And people, you know, the American people loved that combination. Mm-hmm. So we, we had our street show and we had our, our club rock show. And gradually, just because of over time, because of the reaction we were getting with the pipes and the ditch, those those two started to marry more and more. So mm-hmm. when people would sit on the street and come to our club shows, they wanted to see a bit of what we were doing on the street as well. So we had to start blending them. Anyway, so then the blend happened. Um, and after, you know, however long it was, we didn't get the big record deal, or we hadn't got the big record deal. So we just sort of thought, and people kept asking if we had any recordings. So, I mean, back in the day, it was really the start of the indie movement. You know, bands weren't really doing it 
themselves. It was sort of Arnie DeFranco. It was probably just starting at the same time. We played the same venues, places like the Troubadour with her. So anyway, we just we hadn't got the big record deal. We said, well, let's just do it ourselves then. So we, we paid for a studio, recorded our first album, just really the stuff we were doing on the street. And between shows on the street, we'd set up a production line. We had the cassettes printed. We'd do our own artwork, cut, paste, stick, put our artwork together and then sell the next batch mm-hmm. after the next next show. So I don't know, I think just that actually got us a bit of in Hollywood, you know, it's, it's you just never know who's gonna see you. So that got us onto the soundtrack of Baraka, it got us a spot on AR and um, it got us some invitations to festivals. And it was that point when we started sort of venturing out into other places across uh, across the states. And it was that uh, sort of crossover feel. We could do the mainstream festivals, but because of that Celtic tribal, mm-hmm. you know, like Ditch thing, we were also able to cross over into the Celtic um, and folk festivals. So I think that's, uh, yeah, that's how we kind of suddenly found ourselves spreading out. And at the time, there weren't a whole lot of bands just doing it the indie style, just making their own albums at that stage cassettes and then later cds themselves and selling them off the back of their shows so it really that was our launch pad across so, america yeah. so, so for um like the the celtic tribal sound uh the didgeridoo the instrument that um i guess you know set you guys apart when was the first time that you picked that instrument instrument up and start playing it it was about two weeks before we recorded that first album wow in a so I, at that stage, Tina, um, my girlfriend then, and now what mother of my children, um, I just said to Tina, oh, we've got to have, we've got to have Didge on this, we've got to have Didge on this album. It's just, we recorded one song before we came to the States and we used a synth Didge on it. And I'd always loved the Didge. Uh, so when we went to record this album, I just thought, wow, we've got to have Didge. So I had no idea how I knew what to do, but I just made my first ditch. Um, you know, there wasn't the internet at that stage, so I just, I don't know, I just had a, a feel for what what I needed to make, mm-hmm. and um, I actually made a slide ditch because I figured out that the length would determine the pitch. So I'm, the first ditch I made was a slide ditch, and um, and then for the next two weeks before the album, I just went through our flat, just saying to Tina, you know, how does this sound? And I'd, yeah. I'd give her a blast of ditch and. So I learned enough in that time to record our first bit of ditch. Could you uh, could you circular breathe like right away? I could because um, once again, just circumstance as a kid learning the bagpipes um, and practicing the chanter, I just unconsciously learned how to circular breathe so you can keep the chanter noise yeah. going when you're practicing. So once again, it just you know you look back and think, wow, well, was that meant to be or was that just? It just kind of happened, yeah. I was I was under the impression that you were playing that instrument like as a kid, but the fact that you picked it up two weeks before you guys recorded the first album's the self-titled one that's like purple, right? With the yeah, pipe dreams, pipe dreams, yes. And then the second album is that Screechville? No, second was the um, the self-titled one. That's the self-titled. Okay, yeah. Collection demos that we've been doing in LA, mm-hmm. and then the next was Screechville. Yeah, Screechville. But, um, yeah, interestingly with the Didge, that there's recordings of me when I was a little kid imitating the sound of a Didge. Oh, really? But for some, I'd always really connected with that sound, yeah. Yeah, so um, 
when I joined up with you guys, it was uh, 2004, I can't remember the exact month, but uh, the album that you guys were touring under at that time was Urban Cave. Uh, musicians, uh, Des, uh, Ryan Stewart, who's been on the show, Rick Kirk, a musician that Downtown Harvest, my band at the time, had played with. These guys were on the road with you when I first saw you down there in Philadelphia. The Urban Cave album, still today, I mean, it'll pop on in my iPod while I'm like cutting the grass outside. I'm like, you know, it's still got it. It's still got the, you know, the vibe to it. It still has something that makes people feel relevant even to this day. When I joined up with the band, we were going everywhere. We were going up, down, all around. Uh, and that was the year that Dalbo came back. How did you guys first meet Dalbo? Well, that is a fabulous story. Well, I think it's a fabulous story because when we uh, when we looking for that's right when we were first looking, so we got our first drummer in LA. We then uh, he was an American bloke, lovely bloke, and then we wanted to bring our Aussie drummer over, so we brought Brett Dengate over. Um, and then he circumstance took him back to Australia. He married a, an American girl, went back to Australia, and we were looking for another drummer because we were just about to do our first tour um, of, of the States. We desperately needed a drummer. So Gus rang the Musos Institute and got put through to the one of the drum instructors there. And Gus explained to this drum instructor, oh, look, we're an Aussie band, we're... We're looking for a drummer. We're wondering if any of your students might fit the bill. And that instructor goes, well, actually, uh, I might like to do that gig. <laughs> and I'm also Australian. Anyway, it ended up being Dalva. Wow. And yeah. So once again, just it couldn't have been more perfect. And I think from the very first time we met Dalva, we uh, connected with him mm-hmm. like brothers. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's also, he's got a fantastic rhythm to him. You know, and then the band, you know, after uh, Mongrel Mythology came out, we did, we did the DVD release party at the Sellersville Theater up here in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then you guys continued for a little bit before, um, I guess, ultimately you made the decision that you were going to leave the band and return to Australia. Leading up to this decision, you know, you're in this band all your life, you know, and, you know, I, I'm speaking from also personal experience. I mean, it's a difficult decision to, you know, you know, call something, you know, quits and just be like, you know, I, I have to step down. What was going through your mind at the time when you made the decision to, to leave brother and return home and be a, I guess, a, a father and a husband? Yeah, well, it's, it is a, an interesting point to get to because there have been many highs and just as many lows uh, over that almost sort of 20 year career that life journey with the band and and we'd always been in pursuit of that that dream of not just making it our career but also making our mark uh we had a few occasions along the way where we we'd been given pause for thought like just to not always be looking at at the goal at the end goal but to appreciate the journey and i think as we went we got much better at doing that mm-hmm. and uh, look I've enjoyed every lineup we've had with we usually picked our our extra players um, based on on more personality first before their playing ability yeah. playing ability is always important but when you're on the road with people you have to know you're going to be able to connect with them mm-hmm. and uh, yes but uh, early on it was all about the, the destination and we we're missing out on the, the journey along the way 
And then, yeah, we got a few reminders to just take pause and appreciate what we'd achieved and where we were. But nevertheless, uh, that ultimate goal still remained. Uh, we'd had times when we'd sold, you know, huge numbers of albums. You know, in a weekend, we could, we'd have boxes and boxes of CDs empty um, and, and lines after every show at festivals as we sold CDs. And we had other times when the going was really tough financially and just trying to 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 make sure everybody in the band and associated with the band could pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really challenging, especially as an indie band with no one backing you. Um, in the end there, I think that final lineup we had was was probably just the ultimate lineup for me. It was, yep. it was a bunch of guys. We were just very like-minded. We were making really powerful music and that was when Drew had sort of come into the mix as well. Mm-hmm. And they were just guys that very comfortable with. Um, you know, we were we were like a band of brothers and and we were probably the most aware we'd ever been in terms of just what we were doing, where we were going, and just aware of philosophically of, of things, of life. Of, yeah. Um, we were doing a lot of questioning. We were getting behind whatever cause we believed in and could get behind and had the time for. So, yeah, it was a very charged time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the other reality for me was that I had uh, a wife and, and two young daughters at home mm-hmm. who, as you know, like you you were on the road with those guys um, for a while there and that period of a couple of years when Tina and Lillian Grace were on the road with us in the States yeah. and in North America was probably the most enjoyable time um, I've had as a father on the road as well. It was just yeah. fabulous having your family on your road with you, but that was uh, not not sustainable in the long term. So those guys went back to Oz and it just reached the point where I would, no matter how great the show was, no matter how big it was, I'd finish each day, you know, alone in my hotel room. You know, the old stereotype. Yeah. And, uh, and just missing Tina and the girls. So even though the dream still loomed large and it always seemed achievable um, just to step up to that that next level, um, you know, really just reached the point where I wanted to be home with Tina and the girls and I just felt like I'd really, I'd had a fantastic run at it. I'd, I'd had a 20-year run at being a muso on the road and created some, some really good music, had great bands, had wonderful fans and but you know, it was time to step into the next phase. I think, you, yeah, I think you did it very gracefully. I think that you know you made the right decision. You got a chance to go back to Australia, and you know, I mean, thinking about it now, I mean, there was so many things. Like when I was on the road with you guys, even after I left tour, I remember in the years that followed, you guys were always doing something. You guys were, I mean, the first people ever to tell me about stem cell research, and I never really knew anything about it. And I, I think. Christopher Reeve, uh, he had passed, and we, we, we started being on the road, and we would go to places to learn more about stem cell research and try to figure out, you know, the, the, the debate back in the day. I mean, I don't think anybody debates it now, like stem cell research. Yeah, if it works, sure, if you can fix me, fix me. But you guys were out there, you know, whereas most bands during the daytime, they may decide to, you know, just stay in the hotel room and, you know, wait until nightfall so you can get on stage. You guys were always actively pursuing, you know, something good for for human beings, you know, and 
kind of for me, I guess when I think of the band Brother, when I see like the humans connected, that's, I don't really think of it, you know, as like, you know, a band of brothers really, but, you know, just humans being connected. And like, I think that that's what you did um, to the point like where people could connect with the band, like you had that power to bring people in. Um, I saw it. Uh, we I was with you guys when you you did something for the Juvenile Diabetes Research um, Foundation. We did the crazy video with all those kids, and those That's kids right. were you know those kids must be adults now. You know what I mean? They all must. They, some of them didn't even have families, but I remember the the look on their faces. You know, and you know I've been talking a lot with a bunch of musicians. You know, um, it's hard for certain musicians. Uh, you know, the the lure for every single kid growing up is that's going to be me on the wall, on the poster. I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to be this. But, you know, for some, the reality is you get so close to it, but it's unachievable. But at the same time, I feel as if the legacy that your band, Brother, left behind, will, you know, people will remember it for, for, for decades. I mean, people will remember that feeling, that excitement of being at a Brother show, blowing bubbles during the song Crazy, and just seeing the fans' faces, like, after the show, when you guys would take the time, you know, like, to... Uh, speak with the fans. I mean, early in, on in my musical career, like after a show, I was I just couldn't really open up and I really couldn't talk to people. But I would see you guys and you guys would spend hours upon hours out there with the fans, markering up their shirts, doing whatever. And then, you know, towards the end of, I guess, you know, Downtown Harvest and now Pocket Dow, I always take time to, you know, shake somebody's hand and, you know, appreciate them appreciating me as a musician. So, you know, you return home and you become a father, and now, I mean, your kids are all grown up, but Lily uh, is now a musician, right? And she's putting out music. How did that make you feel as a father? Yeah, well, it makes me feel great. Uh, it's, yeah, those girls had a really unique experience growing up, especially when they were on the road with the band, and I think they, Lily and Grace, who's in her final year of high school now, both got a real amazing they learn music via the absorption method. Yeah. And they're around not just the band, but, you know, the Downtown Harvest Skies, all those bands who play festivals with. So they absorbed a lot, and right from the start, they've always been great little musos. They've been blessed with um, fabulous voices. They're both now writing songs that I would be proud to be writing. And certainly I That's awesome. wasn't writing those kind of songs when I was their age. Um, yeah, so Lily's just... She finished high school a couple of years ago, did did the gap year, backpacked all through Europe and started uni this year and just announced to us a few weeks ago that she was dropping out of uni because she wanted to play music. So to which, you know, the news of which delighted her mum and me. Yeah. You know, right. uh, I'm yeah. sure she'll be uni at some point. She's a pretty smart kid, but um, she, she just knows she wants to do music on some level. And interestingly... Not so much before, you know, she's not really about being a big star. You know, the whole performance side of it doesn't yank a chain as much as writing songs, producing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it will be, she's just feeling away and she's doing it quite, had a big talk driving her back up to Sydney uh, last weekend and she's really looking at it, she's doing it intellectually. Mm-hmm. She's got the whole creative side going. She's also looking at it to see what, how does this all, you know, how do the pieces all come together? Which for me is, that's music to my ears, part of the fun, because yeah. that's something we never did when we were starting off. Yeah, you let, you know, a, you, you let a drug deal happen in the Volkswagen. <laughs> exactly. We didn't know what was going on around us, and we felt we 
to work everything out ourselves. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's one way of doing it. But yeah, we don't all have to reinvent the wheel. We don't all have to have every experience ourselves because mm-hmm. that just makes the timeline long. So it's great to see Lily and um, yeah, you know, she does quite a bit with Grace as well. But Lily looking at it and going, okay, trying to work out how does this beast all fit together and how can you make a career of it and what are the different avenues of you can pursue with it. Yeah. So, I think yeah. she's talented. I mean, I've listened to the the songs I've seen on Facebook on um instagram and stuff and you know she's got that vibe that's like it's apparent for what's going on i guess with music now like you know people like adele and stuff like that and you know that type of music that's it's old but it's also new um from i guess like a producer standpoint i'm thinking now to myself is there a possibility that lily and grace could form a band and call it sisters (laughs) you will as i've learned in my long career never say never (laughs) I mean, I think it's brilliant. You know, like I mean, God, I could see, I could see the the t-shirts and everything right now. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, one of the reasons I wanted to get uh, you know everybody on the podcast is because um, I mean, the band after you um, uh, left continued on, and your brother Angus took uh, the realm of you know the lead singer position. Didri Drew uh, joined the band. Dalbo and a couple other musicians, you know, had had funneled in, and they continued on for a couple of years and. Um, I believe you guys recorded two albums. Um, they did one album um, where I believe they, they you guys recorded out there um, the slow down track, and you did a bunch of stuff out in the outback. And then um, Angus just put out his last one. But I guess a couple weeks ago, uh, the brother fans, you know, their hearts were broken when they got the Facebook message announcing that uh, Angus was going to uh, you know leave the band and essentially do the same thing return home and become, uh, you know, a father to his children. You know, it's always hard for when a band breaks up. It's always hard for people to, you know, hear that news, um, to feel that way. And, you know, like, people want things to last in perpetuity. And I think music can do that because, you know, there's CDs, there's audio files. You can continue to listen to it. But what I want to know is, like, so, like, what, what was your experience like being in the band, being a founder of this band, you know, realizing that, you know, the era was coming to a close. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's quite poignant, really. I remember when I, I think we were up in Colorado, up in uh, Aspen or somewhere, when I sat Gus down one morning and we were just trying to work out how we were going to make this thing work. And, and I think at that point I just gave him the news that, uh, yeah, it was time for me to step away and, um, I wanted to be home. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was tough, and you know, as uh, look, it was tough when Fergus left the band because it's a dream we'd shared growing up. But then Gus and I really had morphed it into something, and and to feel like you were stepping away from something that you, since we were kids, we'd worked on it together. It was you know definitely emotional. Um, but the other side of it is, and what I think makes it so hard is. Well, in our position, you feel very connected with your fans. Um, you know, going out after the shows and stuff, I mean, hanging out with people, that's, you don't have to do that, but that, you know, that's genuine. It's just like mm-hmm. we, our fans were very diverse, all ages, all backgrounds, all just a very diverse, different bunch of people. But um, you feel a big uh, responsibility to your fans, or we did anyway, and I'm sure a lot of bands do. Yeah. You feel a sense of responsibility because um, people grow 
with your music. Parents play your music to their kids and suddenly you and their kids, them and their kids are at your show. Suddenly their kids are coming as adults and bringing their kids. And, you know, over a 20-year period, that happens. And people write to you and say, you know, this... You know, we played your music at my wedding. I played this song at my mum's funeral. I... So, yeah, you, you feel a big responsibility and connection with your fans. So as much as you are making those decisions for yourself to either continue or to leave or whatever, you're also... Um, you don't make them without consideration to the bigger family. Yeah. But, you know, that's the fans. So, yeah, look, it's definitely emotional. It's definitely hard. But... I've also been the sort of bloke, I've always, I don't know, a bit of a split personality. You know, at heart, I'm also a farm boy. So I could go from LA or being on the road in the States and playing to hundreds, sometimes thousands of people at, at these festivals and the amazing adrenaline and mm-hmm. pay for that to being home and very quickly being back into just being a homebody, going from the surf every day, growing my veggies, being with my kids. Um, so when I did ultimately leave the band, um, I didn't I didn't miss it. You know, I felt I'd really given it a lot and also had got a lot from it, and that I really had a very, you know, had a good run at it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. as an adult, you know, to pursue your dream for twenty years and have your wife and parents and kids support you, pretty big. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when I came home. Um, my wife Tina she started a, a gospel choir so I was sort of her, her lieutenant in that and that's still going you know we have 60 strong secular gospel choir that does these amazing African American and um, African spiritual four part harmony that's awesome you know and we raise thousands for charities never done a, a, a show that wasn't sold out um, so I've had that I started teaching music um and that's been great having these, especially, you know, my oldest student, 79, but I've had these little kids that I've been teaching for years and to see them become musicians. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had that and I've had the start of this uh, long-held dream of TFO, the Tribal Funk Orchestra. I love that so name, by the way. People who are not musicians, who would not consider themselves musos, and certainly who have never jammed, improvised in their lives, they may know a few chords, a couple of notes, and together we become this jam orchestra that just makes amazing music. So um, emotional as it was leaving brother, I've also had these other things, music outlets in my life that have kind of fed me, and I think that that really helped me, especially early on. Yeah. Because I still had music, and I, you know, doing it in a different way. Doing it a different um, way, yeah. Yeah, so that definitely, I'm grateful for all those elements and they, they filled some gaps. The time I really do miss brother is when I go up to our little Milton Theatre up the road. Yeah. Beautiful 200-seat theatre. Every band there should be sold out. They're always amazing acts, national, internationally touring acts. Use Milton as the stop-off. Every time I see a, a really great band, it's like for me it's like watching a great game of rugby union. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, love to be able to have another game of rugby yeah. Mm-hmm. Same with watching a great band. It's just like, oh, yeah, that feeling of being on stage with, uh, you know, a bunch of exemplary players, just being in the moment and just making amazing music that sometimes gives you chills up your spine. Yeah. That's what I miss, brother. 
we just uh, we were just talking about that uh, on Bobcast episode 100. The whole you just touched on a couple of things that I, I was just talking about last week. The feeling of uh, being able to teach somebody guitar and then watch them, you know, evolve. Uh, when I moved into this house, I taught my neighbor across the street how to play a couple of bar chords. Now he's doing like Nirvana cover songs, and he's just rolling with it. And like I, I, I tell you, it's like it's an elation because it's like you're spreading, you know, that joy and that like gift of music. So I'm very happy that uh, you know you continued uh, with your musical career out there. I'm, I'm ecstatic with the the possibility of maybe sisters coming out one day, uh, hearing more from your daughter's uh, musical careers. And you know, I, you know, I was telling a couple of people, you know, like uh, we were talking when the band brother, you know, initially, I guess a couple of weeks ago, when Gus put that out, you know, I was just like, you know, it's a great legacy. It's a legacy that will last forever. You know, like Gus, I can't, I can't see Gus not picking up a guitar. You know what I mean? Like, I can't see you not picking up a guitar. I know Dabo's still playing his drumsticks, and I know, you know, Fergus somewhere out there is doing his thing, and we do know that Didgeridoo, <laughs> Didgeridoo is still playing his Didgeridoo everywhere he goes. So, you know, I, I wanted to get you guys on tape. I'm going to do a series of these Bobcasts with as uh, many members of the band Brother I can. You were the first, you know, uh, and the reason I picked you the first was because I learned the most from you when I was 24 years old of just basically how to be you know a musician a human being and you know i remember so many small parts i was thinking today like i remember i got in the truck once for a tour i changed my look a little bit around and i was wearing this black hat and i was wearing like this like uh <laughs> like i think it was a russian shirt and you look at me and in the most serious look you go militant b.o.b hmm. <laughs> and i'm like oh it's <laughs> Like these little nuances. Like I remember sitting out at Park La Brea. I remember having, uh, I think they were called Tofutis. These like, uh, these chocolate like. Oh my god. Yeah, right. I remember. I remember all those nights, and uh, I appreciate all those times because you know it really shaped me into the person I am, and in turn, I think it helped create the Bobcast. So you know, I wanted to personally say thank you for that. Yeah, mate. Well, I I thank you back because what you you know I think what we learn along the way is. Um, you know, we're not islands, and the you know being in a band and being on the road, it takes more than just those people in the band. There's a lot of people around you that support you, and um, you know people are very generous when they believe in something, when they connect with something. They're very generous with their time and their energy and and their love. And um, you know, I think we learn from each other. You know, when you guys um, came into the, the the circle of the band, I mean. Now, the learning goes both ways. I think what you guys brought to it, um, you know, you and Drew and then Sam and and your whole crew, you know, um, lovely bunch of guys. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you guys reminded us to um, to not take ourselves so seriously. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got to that stage where it just felt like, oh, come on, we've got to, you know, we've got to sort of make, we've got to have the next breakthrough mm -hmm. because... You know, we're getting on and um, we need to make this make sense for not just the band and our fans and the people that work with us, but our families as well, because everybody's sacrificing. So mm -hmm. but you guys came along with a very light attitude Yeah, we, life. It's just like, oh, that's right. Yeah, we yeah. did have that. Yeah, we did. <laughs> but my, um, uh, probably, my, you know, on reflection, my one big regret with Mungle mythology is that we just didn't let you and Sam... We were so used to having to do everything ourselves, mm -hmm. being hands-on, 
I think it just wasn't in our realm of being at that stage to just hand over to other people and, and let let them take the running on it. On reflection, I would have just, I would let you and Sam run with that thing. Well, and and you, it would have ended up different. I think it probably would have ended up better if, if the brothers Richardson had just like, you know, guys. It happens. Yeah. It happens. Look, it does happen, but it's and it's all learning. So, I, I'm, you know. I'm I'm happy to let you know that somewhere, I know for a fact there is the first cut of Mongo mythology, which is I think about two and a half hours long, with a whole bunch of footage that people have never seen. A couple years back, my brother came home for Thanksgiving. We watched it together. There's so much stuff that perhaps maybe one day we'll put out there for the Bobcast listeners and the brother fans to uh, see. Um, okay. You know, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's uh, 8.41 p.m. here. I guess it's uh, precisely, what, 12.41 over there in the afternoon on Saturday? And I've got, hey, Bob, can I just also say, I was just thinking when you're talking about, um, um, you know, Gus and evolving brother, when mm-hmm. after all, when those guys came out and we did the, uh, the Brother Down Under tour early in the year with those bunch of fans on the two of us, it was an incredible experience. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that must have been amazing to have that. It was. And when I heard Gus and uh, Dalbo and Drew and Mick get up on the stage and I could watch them as an audience member, I really thought that that, you know, Gus and the boys had evolved that to the most powerful sound the band had ever probably had. It definitely, um, yeah. It in the in the years that followed, they definitely did take it to that level. Yeah, they they pushed it, you know. And it, it yeah. was great that I mean, like, God, I wish I could have gone on that tour, but um, at the time, I just I, I I couldn't make it. But um, it was great to see all that stuff. You know, we'll have to talk after this Bobcast about all that footage, and perhaps maybe we could put that together and make something out of it. But I mean, I saw some of the the raw footage on Facebook, and it, it looked amazing. All the reunion, like you know, the there must have been a concert. It was like on somebody's back porch. That was amazing. So good, and um, to then get up amongst yeah those four guys and be part of that lineup yeah. for me it was just oh I would like to do more mm-hmm. with this lineup. But you know, never say never. But what never. we will be never so, say uh, never. No, to have, have got the chance just to do those couple of weeks with those guys uh, was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the pictures look great, you know. And like I said before, you know, this legacy it'll go on forever. People will be talking about brother for years to come i mean the fans like as you said you know they're going to you know cipher it down to their kids their kids will play for their kids and you know i mean i think that like a musician always should just put his or her best foot forward and you know if you if you attract the attention of just one person and you change that one person's life you know i think that you've made the difference you know for yourself and like you know that's like our responsibility as musicians is to be able to spread that love spread that joy and you, my friend, are uh, an excellent, you know, uh, demonstrator of that here on the Bobcast. Uh, Hash, thanks very much for being a part of uh, episode 101. This is the new chapter. Uh, the show used to be called uh, the Bobcast, but now we're going to make some changes, and it's going to be called the Dadcast, Dadcast. You know, perhaps you can come back on the show, <laughs> give me some right. tips, you know, because I don't know. I've never been a dad before. I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to get a whole bunch of dads on here to talk about, you know, what it's like being, you know, a father at age zero or age 21 or age 30, what have you. But, um, yeah, I want to say thanks once again uh, for being a part of uh, my life. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, 
My name is Bob. My guest tonight has been Hamish Richardson of the band Brother. We know him as Hash. We love him. Thanks for everything you taught me. Uh, I sincerely mean that. You are one of a kind, and uh, I look forward to bringing you back here on the Dadcast to chat about all things. Uh, Good luck to uh, your kids. We love you. My name's Bob. This has been episode 101 of Dadcast. Dadcast.